0: Thanks for your interest in Emmanuel Baptist. Here at Emmanuel, we believe in the one and only authoritative text for guidance, the Holy Bible. We pray that this sermon will speak to your heart and open your eyes to the glory of God. Make sure you plug into your local church and get to know others that love the Holy Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, just like you. Thanks again, and God bless you guys. NCAA basketball tournament just finished up and so finally crowned a champion. Maybe not the champion that you wanted, but a champion was crowned. Think about all those players who uh, put a lot of time and work in, not just the season, but before this season. And I think about going back to the beginning of the season and maybe some things that were talked about by the head coach and other coaches. So think about it. First day of practice, what's a coach going to say? Well, he's going to probably talk about, you know, I'm glad you're here, glad you're on the team. Here's going to be your position. Here's your playbook. Practices will be on these days at this time. We're going to have games coming up. Here's the schedule of the games. Here's the coaches. introduce the coaches. Make sure you know them. All these things going on. But at some point, the coach is probably going to say, why are we here? <laughs> and that's because we want that national championship. We want our school song to be played. We want to parade on campus. We want to cut down the nets. We want to hold that trophy and say, yes, we are the champions. The end of Scripture. The end of all the events that God has ordered and arranged. The end of our desires. The end for which God created the world is that God's people would see God's face. There's nothing beyond this. There's nothing greater than this. Everything we do now ultimately is for that. Everything we're doing here this morning, everything you will do this week should ultimately be to see God one day. just want to be honest with you because when I was doing this sermon and practicing it, I said, John, that's not you most of the time. Thinking about and longing for seeing God, I don't know how much is in my heart and my mind all the time. We get wrapped up with all kinds of things, don't we, day in and day out. The great pressures, the great anxieties of life, just trying to absorb life. Just trying to make it to the next day. Just trying to pay the bills. Asking God, just please give me some things I need today. To fix this situation. And that longing, that vision of God and seeing God being in a daily basis. This is going to be a time this morning that we really need to ask ourselves some serious questions. What are we really about in life? Why did we even bother putting on some clothes this morning, decent clothes, and coming to church and worshiping God? Why did we make the effort? Why are we here? Moses saw the burning bush. Remember that? He got a chance to see the burning bush. That'd be an amazing thing. That didn't consume. (laughs) It just kept on burning. Moses got to be an instrument of God's plagues on Egypt and Pharaoh. He was a mediator of that great power of God. Moses the one that got to go be with God and get the Ten Commandments on the mountain. And he asked the biggest question in the history of humanity. Exodus 3:3:18. "Lord, please show me your glory." What he really wanted was to see God's face. Wasn't Moses a bit brash? Shouldn't Moses learn in some respect that there is a distance between us and God and to ask God to see his face is out of bounds for us as humanity? But if you read the scriptures from beginning to end, we know this is exactly what God wants. He is looking for people who want and who say and sing and live, show me your glory. Qualification here in Matthew 5.8 is that those people are pure in heart. We're going to talk about that today. It's going to be very important to understand what it means to be pure in heart. But the bigger question really just goes back to, are we really wanting and craving and living to see God's glory and His face? Heaven is made up, at least we see here in Matthew 5, is made up of Moses' followers. Most followers in the sense that they say, Lord, please show me your glory. I cannot live without it. Again, we're trying to find who is a citizen in the kingdom of heaven. Put in our terms, we normally talk about it. It's who's going to be in heaven? <laughs> well, it's going to be people who want to see God's face. They crave this. This is a passion for them. Most time, Christianity is some people's minds, a religion made up just to help deal with life, deal with pragmatic concerns. But really, Christianity is preparing us on this journey to see God. He is the end of the journey. He is the journey. So this morning, we're going to look at two parts here this morning. What does it mean to be pure in heart and how do we have it? And then briefly at the end, we're going to think a little bit more about what it means to, to see God. Most of it will be on this first part here, what it means to be pure in heart. So again, what is pure in heart, and how do I get it? Those will be pretty important questions. Hopefully those are the first questions you'd want to ask in looking at this passage. And I want to make sure we do not think of this in a very superficial, simplistic way, that we're going to just talk about this morning how we just need to make a few better choices in our life, or be a little more careful what we watch on the internet or be a little more careful about choosing our friends, or having a little bit longer of a quiet time with God. There's a few areas we could do better. This is much different than that. So what does this mean to be pure in heart? We've got three things. First of all, I think at the heart of it means devotion or allegiance to Jesus. Devotion or allegiance to Jesus We see pure in heart, and maybe some of us are thinking, no way this is going to (laughs) happen. I am not pure in heart. I have no chance, because there are some things in my heart that are wrong. There are sinful. And if that was true, then no human being would ever see God. So it cannot mean being absolutely pure and holy. I think this is a lot how we need to understand the word righteous in the Old Testament and the designation saints. We see these designations a lot in the book of Psalms and Proverbs, talking about the righteous and the saints. And they will have promises given to those who are righteous and those who are the saints. And probably for most of us, we read that and say, that's not me. I'm going to keep going on because I'm not righteous. I said some things this morning to my spouse that I shouldn't have said. So I'm already disqualified for this day already. I'm not righteous. But again, as here, back there, in the Old Testament, righteous, it doesn't mean absolute purity, without any sin. It means that your heart is devoted to God. And all that you are, you're giving yourself to the Lord. And yes, at times you may sin. But you have a God word heart and a God word allegiance that is obviously evident to other people even around you. Not perfection, but there is a devotion there to the Lord. Cold place in the Old Testament, I think, are going to help us here. We just read Psalm 24. It talks about those who are going to ascend the hill, of the Lord, going to stand in his holy place, who can be like a priest in God's presence. Well, those who have clean hands, it says here, a pure heart. Then what follows it, if you caught that, is one who does not lift up his soul to what is false. If you have the New International Version, it has idols. Actually, the little word there for idols is not used. It's what is false. But the idea here is correct, that it is, does refer to idols. Idols are false. And when you give your allegiance to them, you are doing something that is false because they are false. You're not showing your devotion or your allegiance to God. As David says in Psalm 16, verse 4, The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. I will take their names on my lips nor offer offerings to them. It was very clear he does not want to give his heart to another God, a false God or an idol. Again, alluding to allegiance. Psalm 73, verse two. God is good to those who are pure in heart. Then The psalmist says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped because I was envious of the wicked. Did you catch this? God's good to those who are pure in heart. And the psalmist says, I almost lost that purity. My feet almost stumbled because I was envious of the wicked, and it seems like they are doing so well in life. Again, it would have caused him not to be devoted to God, but his heart would have been divided over this and not given full praise and worship allegiance to God. So this, I think, pure in heart has to do with allegiance or being devoted Specifically here, devoted to Jesus. Back in chapter 4, verse 19, Jesus meets some fishermen, Peter and Andrew, and he says to them, follow me. Meaning, give me your devotion. And we are told that they left their job, their career, their family, they left their old life, everything that they used to find safety in is now done away with. Their self-interests in their life now are now turned away from self, and now their interests are only in Jesus and what he wants. So following Jesus is wholehearted devotion, confessing and living out your allegiance to Christ, exemplified in being baptized publicly where you publicly identify Christ and confess him. And this means you want to be publicly known as a follower of Jesus. You crave obedience. You hunger and thirst for righteousness. Your life is now gathered up and directed toward Jesus in every way. Blessed are the pure in heart. Follow me. Just think about that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about this in The Cost of Discipleship. It says, like, follow me. Where are all the details, right? Where? How? When? For how long? What's the cost going to be? What are you going to ask me to do, Jesus? Jesus immediately tells them, zero. You don't need to know. You'll know in time what it's gonna be, what's going to be involved with it. You will know all these details in time, if you come follow me, but if you choose not to come, you'll never know. And you'll never know me. You'll never know the kingdom. You must get up and you must go and follow Jesus. This is the obedience here, part of our devotion and allegiance to Christ. You will have to trust Christ for absolutely everything. Unless you are willing to give it all up, you won't go. The thing here is with Jesus followers is that there are some in the midst of them that want the blessings of obeying Jesus, but they don't want to do the obeying. This last we looked at, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. I think everybody wants to have mercy when they stand before God one day. But you yourself must learn to be merciful. And some people just refuse to do that. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I want resurrection life, right? I want to live in the new heavens, new earth. But you must be weak. You must give up your show and demonstrations of power and glory before others. So the way is hard. It's an unconditional call to allegiance. And you as a follower must not put your conditions on the unconditional call of Jesus. Jesus calls unconditionally and you cannot return back to Jesus by saying, here are my conditions. This is not a contract we work out with Jesus. People can be very nervous about devotion, right? So some people refuse to get married and they may live together, right? Because <laughs> you're scared of it. You want to say, do I really want to be fully devoted to this one person for the rest of my life? I'm not so sure about that. There's maybe some other people that I could be interested in at some time. Oh, you want me to invest all my money in this one fund? No, I don't want to do it all in one fund. I want to diversify just in case this one way doesn't work out. So I'm going to split this up. Uh, 30, 30, do my math, 40, right? This is the grave danger for anyone who hears the call of Jesus. I'll give Jesus 40. I got no problem with that. I got another 30 over here and I'm keeping. I got another 30 over here I'm keeping. This is the grave danger in following Jesus. And to think that because you have the 40, you're good to go. Something is always better than nothing, right? Jesus never gave that offer. He never said, if you give me 40%, you can have me. Never made that offer to anybody. As someone has said, sometimes it's the smallest things that take up the most room in our hearts. And Jesus says, follow me, and all those little things that you are craving to have so bad, give them up. Give them up. There are obstacles in the roadway of following me. Pure in heart, those who will one thing, that is to know Jesus. Second of all, it is about sincerity, sincerity. Pure in heart, being sincere in two different ways. First of all, in depth of heart, depth of heart. This is Jesus. This is the way of Jesus. He strips down disciples to get to the inner core, the deeper core of their being so that they will engage him truthfully at the very bottom of their hearts. It's easy to stay, stay superficial with Jesus, just as it's very easy to be superficial with other people, right? Never get real tied up with other people. No strings, no obligations, where you can move fluidly in and out of a relationship. And you all have those, Right? And you know there is no depth of love there and there's no depth of significance. You can walk away from that relationship and it's no problem. But with Jesus, as Jesus instructs us, teaches us, he wants us to go deep with him. And that means stripping our hearts bare. Matthew 23, verse 26. Jesus says, you blind Pharisee, First clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside may also be clean. Clean inside. Clean deep in the heart first. This is where the substance really is to be found. And we know there that what's going on there, Jesus is talking to Pharisees, but he's also talking to the crowd and to his disciples. And he's sending a message to his disciples. You see these Pharisees who clean the outside of their life? and make it look like to other people that they are very godly, but inside there's great wickedness, stay away from it. This is a warning to the church. Don't be like the Pharisees. Don't copy their ways. Matthew 23, verse 28. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So Jesus teaches, he shines his light, and then based on the disciples' reaction, that depends how far that light travels into the heart. And if the light of the truth of Jesus does not get deep into the heart of a person, there is no purity of heart. Disciples welcome the light of Jesus to reveal the darkness of their soul. Jesus wants to penetrate into the parts of your heart that you are constantly hiding from your spouse, from your kids, from your friends, and from your church members. Jesus stripping away all the false billboards of righteousness, all the false messages, all the false lies that we use to cover up and to hide and ignore the truth. Jesus wants that to come out so that you become pure in heart. I've mentioned a few times and some of you made my presentation that when I was over in Iraq, I had Turkish coffee. <laughs> so again, they usually presented what I call like a shot glass, kind of a small little glass. And it's real powerful stuff. And it, it's good. I like it. But if any of you have heard about this before, again, the bottom of that is sludge. And you do not want to drink it. It could cause you some serious problems. And that's where Jesus always goes. And you know, as you've read the Gospels, that when Jesus encounters somebody, he always goes to the sludge. As everybody is shaking and baking, trying to get away from Jesus, Jesus says, let's stop the dancing. (laughs) Just show me your sludge. What do you got? What do I need to deal with? This is just very important to Christianity, very important to New Testament authors. Let me give you just one prominent example in the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. This really exemplifies the heart that Christians are to seek to have in being pure in heart. Peter writes here, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, just, just stop and think about that now. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. I mean, <laughs> it'd take a long time to break this down, wouldn't it? To get all the different ways up Peter is trying to communicate that we as Christians are concerned about being pure in heart. When Peter was writing this, the Holy Spirit, Holy, Holy Spirit must have given him that recollection of Jesus saying, in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the pure in heart. So as Christians, we love one another earnestly, and we do that from a pure heart. Where do we get a pure heart? Again, notice the first part. You, having purified your souls, By your obedience to the truth. There is a way through our obedience that we do purify our souls and our hearts. And this must happen by us responding to the truth of Jesus. So this is the depth of heart, the sincerity deep down in us. But second of all, it's the unity of heart, unity of heart. You heard many sermons on this some months ago on the affections, okay? And this is what we're getting back to again. Three aspects that make up our being or how we function, how we operate as human beings. Our knowledge or our intellect, then our affections or our passions, and thirdly, our will. And all these three things together operate in how we live our lives, And Jesus says the pure in heart are those who are fully engaged in all of their being. All three cylinders are firing and in rhythm and in power together. The psalmist in Psalm 86 verse 11, he cries out and says, Lord, unite my heart to fear your name. The inner turmoil, the discord, the disagreement... A lot of times that makes up our being, right? I want this and I want that. I know I should do this, but I really don't want to do that. That looks really good. There's all this inner turmoil trying to decide what to do, what to pursue after. And there is like civil war inside of us. We know what the right thing to do is, but yet we want this because this will make us happy and joyful and will satisfy our pleasures so we think. And we are at war internally. Blessed are the pure in heart where those wars are beginning to cease less and less. And our knowledge, our hearts, our affections, and our will are just functioning in power together, choosing, exalting righteousness. I don't know if you appreciate good acting or not, there's some really good actors today. Maybe you know some of them. And they're good actors because they really fill up the role that they are playing in a way that really makes the character believable. They get into that character and they play that character very, very well. And as they do that and as they testify, it just almost seems like they're in that person, whoever they are trying to portray in that scene or in that movie or whatever. I've been reading about some of this lately and I read about this term called mechanical acting. Mechanical acting. This is where you do the outward expressions without actually experiencing what that person you're trying to portray experienced. So you're trying to portray this person, this character, but you're not really experiencing the emotions or the passions or the heart of that person, and you're just doing the outward actions. Jesus doesn't want mechanicalness. He wants us to have a full heart that is operating together and that what we're singing and what we're praying and what we're doing and we're telling others about ourselves, that is deep within us. That is actually who we are. It's not mechanically acting. It is genuine expression of who we are. And thirdly, it is mourning. It's devotion, it's sincerity, and it is mourning. Pure in heart does not imply there is no failure. But when a disciple who is pure in heart fails, they don't take it lightly because they're hungering and they're thirsting for righteousness. Blessed are those who mourn, who are grieved over a failure to love and obey God who are grieved when they let others down and hurt others. Or even here this morning, they're grieved when they sing songs and their heart just doesn't seem to be registering with the words and they're thinking about so many other things and their heart and mind isn't even here. And disciples who appear in heart are aggrieved over that. It exposes the depravity of their hearts. Matthew 7, verse 14 Jesus says, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. Jesus says that to find life in him, it's going to be a very hard road. And this is how we develop purity of heart, is on that road following Jesus. As we try to obey him and live for him, there is a cost. There are afflictions. There are trials, which means there is frustration at times. There is loss. There is failure. And those who are pure in heart keep pressing on. Even as Jesus keeps leading them on, teaching us and leading us in what is right, even though we're suffering seemingly setbacks, we keep following, and amidst that pain, all of a sudden, purity of heart begins to develop. The way is hard. And it's not just because of the trials, but it's because of what the trials dredge up. There's hard work and there's mourning in doctoring your heart. Because what, bring, what comes up as a result of those trials is lust, I really have that much lust in my heart? Selfishness, idols, bitterness, and greed. This is what happens when you follow Jesus. Those things are deep inside your heart that you're not trying to reckon with. All of a sudden, they just come flying out, and you have to say, is that really me? And you have to say, yes, it is me. But I'm going to keep on following Jesus He will take care of me. He will love me. He will forgive me. And he will help me deal with this garbage and sludge that is deep in my heart. And the disciple will endure. And those who endure will be saved. Those who endure will be pure in heart in the end. So how do I become pure in heart? That's where it is. So how does this actually happen? Well, it's a combination of two pieces, two pieces that you have to always keep together, never to be kept separate. First of all, it's God's gracious gift. So whenever you recognize your pure in heart, you automatically say, God has done this. All praise to him. No credit here. And second of all, it is by cultivating holiness through hard, strenuous work. It's a gift, yet it's also very hard work. So first of all, it's a God's gracious gift. Anything we have, anything we accomplish is a gift from God. God is the one at work in us, preparing us to meet Him face to face. His work, His promise, His grace all of it centered on Christ and His work of salvation for us. Ephesians 5.27 says that Jesus is committed and He is working so that the church will be presented to Himself in splendor, that in any spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that we would be holy and blameless. Christ is at work. He is doing this. By God's grace, God is doing the heavy lifting in the unseen places of our hearts. God is giving us a new understanding. New desires are springing up. Our will is being empowered to lift righteousness and to drop wickedness. We are learning to exalt our neighbor and to lower ourselves beneath them. 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul says something really amazing. He said, I've worked harder than all the other apostles. That makes it a little uncomfortable, doesn't it? <laughs> Apparently, the Apostle Paul could say that because everybody was saying it, right? Peter, James, you know, they're doing they're a good job. They're, they're working hard, but nobody works harder than Paul. He is laboring all the time. He is just passionate about serving Christ. But Paul goes on to say there, it's not I, but it's the grace of God that is with me. God's grace is the one that is doing this, and Paul recognizes this. He should receive no credit, no glory for his working. In heaven, there's going to be no banners with Paul's picture on there. And you're not going to get a banner either. There's no banners for us saying, look at what they did. They worked so hard. It was God's grace. But then again, it's got to be strenuous cultivation. Some days you should feel really tired trying to fight for righteousness and love what is good and honorable and precious to the Lord. You should feel tired at the end of the day. If you're just glibly going through life saying, this is so easy, man, Christ is so good, there's no work involved. You're not on the way that is hard, that leads to life. So how do we cultivate this? Just three things quickly. First of all, it's cultivating a Christ-centric way of life, a Christ-centric way of life. That just means, as you follow Jesus, you are just weaving Him into your life in all aspects of your life. We don't literally follow Jesus because He's not here physically, but in some sense it is literal because He is with us spiritually through the Holy Spirit. Christ is with us. Christ is here this morning. And when you leave, He is with you. And so you need to be engaging Him. Confessing your sins. Oh, Jesus, I'm so sorry. I just thought that. Would you forgive me? People around you might think you're crazy, but that's what you do. Say, Lord, I'm so frustrated. And it just comes out of your mouth. It's like you have this invisible friend like little kids have, right? <laughs> you have an invisible friend, and he's a real friend, and he's your master and your savior, and you just engage with him through all the situations of all day long. And you begin to address life the way Jesus did. All the problems, all the opportunities, all the temptations through and with Jesus, who is right there. And that's how you become pure in heart. Really difficult to do this apart from knowing the Word of God. The Word of God provides you X-ray vision to see through the world's shadows and deceptions and illusions. To fully engage this world through the truth of Jesus, even as the world that you are engaging is seeking to hide and escape from the reality of Christ. And all the world offers you, you see right through it. You say, I know exactly what this is about. You can't fool me. Jesus is teaching me what this world is about, and I know what this is about. And this is deception, this is an illusion. No matter where you are, Christ is with you, and you are engaged with Him very purposefully. Even with another person, you are never alone. You always make a triangle of three, whether many people or just one other person. There's always three. You, Christ, and the other person. You, Christ, and your spouse. You, Christ, and your son or daughter. You, Christ, and your mom and dad. There's always three. Second of all, we cultivate disciplined and pattern thoughts and actions so we might have the right dispositions. The right dispositions. One of the great hindrances that Christians stumble with is being herky jerky. Some Christians get very excited about something, very curious about something, and all of a sudden they have heightened emotion and passion for it, but then two weeks later it's gone and they're on some other rabbit trail. So, oh, there's a great new Bible out. You've got to have this Bible. And they go out and buy this Bible, and they read and study it every day for a few days, and then, has anybody seen my Bible around? Or there's this new teacher, new preacher on the radio. you got to hear this preacher. He's just the best. Or this worship service, or this song, and it's just constant herky-jerky stuff because there's no discipline patterns of conduct and of thinking. It's hodgepodge. And that's why people don't develop consistency in their lives and Christ does not seem that real to them and therefore they lack the purity of heart. We've got to cultivate these disciplines and patterns in our lives. Can't go through all of them, but certainly you need a pattern of studying the word of God please don't hear that as me just putting something on your list that every good Christian should ought to do. No, this becomes your joy. This becomes your passion and you discipline yourself. And as you do these things, these patterns and habits end up working on you. And you begin to have more joy, more passion for Christ. And all of a sudden you want to pursue other kinds of purity in your life all of us are being trained every day by the world we are in the gymnasium of the world and the world is training you putting through different workouts training your thinking training your desires training your will they're trying to give you a vision for life they're making you offer saying if you do this with us and the world then the world will give this to you all kinds of multimedia events ads flashing on your phones Sales, advertisements, trying to train you. Not just make you offers, but trying to train you. I was reading something this past week that made a big impact on me and hadn't really thought about this before. And this will probably hit home for you. If it doesn't today, maybe when you go home and watch TV. <laughs> Our culture has gotten to place that we recognize that goods, things that we can buy, don't satisfy the goods in of themselves don't really make much difference anymore. The 80s, there was this, all this money that people had and people just started buying things. They thought they were going to find happiness. But guess what? As the generations have come and gone, people say, it doesn't work. So now we have what's called an experience economy. Experience. So think about the commercials that you see on TV. They're not just selling you a good. They're selling you an experience. I just saw advertisement for um, pickups the other day. It's not that it's a nice-looking vehicle. No, it's what you can do with it and the experience you have. You need to go on this vacation because it will transform you and your family. You need to go on this kind of experience. Everybody is selling experiences because people know the goods in themselves don't really do anything, especially when you're by yourself. But if that good can give you an experience and you can remember 20 years from now as you sit around with your family, you will lay down your money. And those things will have an effect on you. They will be an experience. And the world is trying to give you lots of experiences to train you. You've got to be in the gym of Jesus every day training disciplining yourself, cultivating these patterns of discipline to make sure to help work on your heart because if your heart goes astray, you're in danger. You need new attitudes. You need new thoughts. You need new desires every day pumping and working inside of you. Otherwise, you'll be working out in the gym of the world all day long. And thirdly, cultivate an ability to listen to your heart. That's how you cultivate a purity of heart. Cultivate an ability to listen to your heart. Now, it just sounds like I went rogue when I said that, right? (laughs) What are you saying? Your heart's your authority? You listen to your heart now? No, your heart is not your authority. But this is what I mean. Your heart can help you because your heart is sending you messages and sending you thoughts and feelings. And if you listen to your heart, you can doctor your heart because your heart is telling you what's wrong. When you feel or sense that you are envious, guess what? The heart is telling you you're feeling envious, you want something somebody else has got, and you need to dock your heart and say, oh, envy, I've been waiting for you. I know how to take care of you. Christ is my contentment. Christ is my satisfaction. And so your heart, through different frustrations, different emotions, is telling you what's going on. All the things that you don't like in your emotions and you want to put away, don't put them away. They're telling you the truth about your heart. If you want to put bad emotions away, be careful. They're telling you the truth of what's actually in the sludge of your heart. There are messages that can help you deal with the truth in Jesus. And that's why if you are too busy and your mind is filled with everything of this world, you'll never hear your heart. and you never hear your heart cry. When cars break down, they get so bad they come to a stop, or they won't start, right? <laughs> but if you're a mechanic, most time you can see the signs before it actually gets to that point. Right? You take your car in, won't work, they got to tow it, and they say, was it doing this, was it doing this? It's like, yeah. You didn't know how to listen to it, did you? The can't knows what to listen for. Your car doesn't actually physically groan and say, ugh, I'm sick. But your heart is groaning. It is telling you and sending you messages, something's not right. It's telling you, you need to comfort your heart with God's promises. You need to slay your fears. You need to attack envy. You need to teach frustration the truth. All this is to see God. Again, Moses. Moses wants to see God's glory, wants to see his face. And God says, okay, come off to the side. Go off to the side a little bit. Go off in the cleft of the rock and you'll be able to see my back for a short instant. My face shall not be seen. So why is it that we have the promise of seeing God's face? That's because the great I am has come. It's come in the flesh, this great mediator who mediates us for us now and in heaven. In heaven one day, new heavens, new earth, we will see God's face through the mediation of Jesus Christ. As human beings go, as much as we can, we will have a complete knowledge of God. That does not mean we will know all of God, but as human beings, as much as we can handle with our minds, we'll have complete knowledge of God, a complete relationship with him, and full and complete joy. Every heart desire, every deep longing for joy and happiness will be satisfied forever and ever you'll have unending joy that will never languish, but will always and only intensify. Can you even imagine that? It's never gonna weaken, you're never gonna get bored, and in fact, your joy, your desires for joy in God will be heightened. God will so change your desires that you have greater desires which will match the greater joy and happiness that he will give you. And this will be your experience forever and ever. So how do you know if you're going to get that? Again, I think with these Beatitudes, what's going on here is this promises that you will have this. They come now in part. The fullness is coming, but through the work of the Spirit, we have these now. And so now, as a believer in Jesus, you should be able to testify to tasting and seeing the glory of God. I'm not talking about something physically. I'm not talking like an everyday occurrence. I'm just saying with the eyes of your heart, you can testify that you've seen the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul says, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. Paul assumes that you as a believer are beholding the glory of the Lord right now. And if you see the glory of the Lord now, would you not want the fullness of that? And Paul goes on to say that you're being transformed from one degree of glory to another. We're becoming pure in heart, Paul says. So you see, if you put this all together. How did you become pure in heart? Is beholding the glory of the Lord, and as you are doing that, you're being changed and be given a pure heart, so that one day you will be ready to see God face To face, we all know that happiness is outside of us, isn't it? Happiness is outside of us. We were never meant to be happy in of ourselves. Now, some people rectify that, and they use people, they use relationships, they use spouses, to try and make them happy. Some people have to go buy a car, have to have new clothes to find happiness. But people know, you know that happiness is not in you. We were always meant to find happiness outside of ourselves. And now we know where it is truly found. It is in God. We were made ultimately for him because we cannot have happiness apart from God. And if you by faith in Christ, become happy in the Lord and you behold his glory. You are becoming pure in heart and you will see him face to face. Let's pray. It's an absolute waste of my time, Lord, to be here this morning unless... You are at work by your spirit. These words will just be dribblings out of my mouth unless you make life out of these words. You are life. You are the giver of life. I ask you today to give life where there's death and estrangement I pray that you would bring people to yourself and you would enlighten their hearts and their minds and they'd be caught up into your glory. Lord, I pray, Lord, you would transform our existence so that we're actually anticipating seeing your face one day. That life does not so overtake us. That you become so secondary. That you become in the back seat of our car all the time and that you're just never, never prominent. Lord, forgive us for how we make so many other things so vastly important, so crucial to our existence when it's actually you. You're so much forgotten. Change our patterns. Change our habits. Change our lives. Make them something different. We pray today would actually be a start of that, Lord. And everyone here is powerless. They can't do it. So grant this according to your grace for your glory so that you'd be seen in Christ's name, amen.